So, previously on Jude, we uh, last time began this section dealing with the specifics of these false teachers that have now arrived and have secretly slipped into their midst. Um, These people, uh, Jude using his triplets, describes them as those who defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And we uh, talked a little about those things, and they do it by means of or relying upon, as the ESV says, their dreams. And so they take authority outside of Scripture, and they use that as the basis for their false teaching, that they are uh, summed up, as it were, by their immorality, their rejection of authority, and their arrogance. So when we come to verse 9... We will start to unpack this a little bit more. And we'll see a little bit more about these false teachers. And it is verse 9 that we come to one of the uh, most awkward um, passages of Scripture. Because it deals with a story that most of us are not familiar with because it's not in the Bible. And uh, I'll just read it to you and uh, we'll have have a little unpacking of it. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said the Lord rebuke you these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively okay The body of Moses. Well, how do we unpack this? First of all, let's just deal with the basics. The basics here is that this is a story that is referenced in two separate apocryphal books. The Assumption of Moses and the Testament of Moses. And if you've never heard of those books, it's probably because, A, why would you? Um, And B, you know, um, we have very, very few copies left. And it's not really something that was heavily preserved. But in the same way that if you pop into my study, which you're all welcome to do afterwards, you'll see a huge collection of books. Um, There were in those days, though there was no printing press, and though there weren't as many, there certainly were religious books outside of the Bible. And just as I wouldn't claim that any other books on my shelf are inspired by God, they're nevertheless hopefully useful to some degree. So the fact that Jude references a religious book or a story contained in a couple of religious books shouldn't uh, shake us or trouble us in any way, shape or form. Um, the, The only question really is, if Jude is quoting from an uninspired book, does that mean that that uninspired book is true? Well, let's just unpack that a little bit. If, if I'm here preaching a sermon and I give you an illustration and I say it's kind of like when Gandalf went to the whatever in Middle... Uh, you know, people who love this stuff are just going to be horrified at me butchering it, but went into Middle Earth somewhere and did something against Sauron or whatever Lord of the Rings nerdy stuff happened. And if, I'm, if I used some, some fictional work to give you an illustration, then none of you would think, oh my goodness, the pastor believes in Gandalf. You know, this is terrible. No one's going to think that because it's obviously fictional. Whereas on the other hand, if I am quoting to you from, uh, from a, um, some other Christian book, and I said, like this, this pastor says in his commentary, and I you know, read you out a quote that I prepared then you would understand, I hope, that I agree with that person on the point that I'm quoting them on. But that doesn't mean that you should therefore go and get their entire collection of writings, everything they've ever written, 
and presume that I agree with absolutely everything that they've ever said on any matter ever. Obviously, I'm simply quoting to you something which I think illustrates perfectly uh, what I'm trying to say. So with the assumption of Moses, which is the one of the two that seems to have the closest parallel here, with Jude referencing that book and with Jude referencing that story, does it seem that he thinks that he's referring to something fictional? And I think clearly not. I think that, that there is something here that um, he is making a point from and there's no indication that he gives that this is anything other than completely true. So, the question that so many Christians have at this point is, how on earth would he know that something outside the Bible was true when you keep telling us to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and to not, you know, no need to go outside the Bible? How do you explain that? Well, very easy. Jude's a prophet. I'm not. It's really that simple. I mean, Jude is able to take something and, and to say that's true. But I, th- I think a closer parallel would be is that we might make reference to something that happened in church history. And what we have to remember is when we go back a few thousand years, their history, as it were, is, is, a, is a lot uh, further away from maybe our history. We might make reference to, to you know, Luther or Calvin or, you know, Wycliffe or, or someone like that. We're going back centuries Um, If they go back centuries, they go back a lot, lot further. And so I think that this is certainly something that Jude believed to be true. Does that mean that we have to believe everything in the Testament of Moses? Not at all. It doesn't mean that Jude believed that. It doesn't mean we need to give any authority to apocryphal books. It just means that there was a general assumption that in this non-inspired book, that some of the things it was referring to were historically accurate. That's all it means historically accurate. And you would read a history book and you would say, oh, here's this history book and I'm reading about, you know, Julius Caesar invading Britain in 50 whatever AD or something like that. And you're reading that and you're like, you don't believe the book's inspired. You don't think that this is God's word, but you believe that what's being reported is historically accurate. And that's all that's happening here. Jude is referencing a story that he clearly believes and he is inspired as he does so so we should also believe actually occurred and you say but it didn't it's not in the bible and my answer is yes it is it's here in the book of jude there it is in the bible so this is something that occurred and this is something that we can consider true but it shouldn't lead us to come to crazy conclusions about apocryphal literature so there is this story that have been recorded elsewhere that is historically true the text it comes from is not inspired but jude is and so let's look more closely at what jude said when the archangel michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of moses you see it's going to get tricky isn't it why on earth was he arguing with uh, uh with michael over the body of moses Well, we see historically in Scripture that the issue of body and the preservation of body and and where it's buried is is often an issue. Here, um, in one of those apocryphal books, there was an argument from Satan that he was the master of matter, that his realm was on the earth. The Bible speaks about that. Um, Remember in the temptation of Christ in Matthew's Gospel that... Satan says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. And Jesus' response was not, you don't have authority to do that, was it? That's fascinating. Maybe one for another day. But certainly, Satan felt he had a degree of authority over the realm of the earth, and he's like, this stuff belongs to me. And the issue in those books over Moses' body is that Satan said that Moses was a murderer. And therefore, his uh, body shouldn't be buried in the land. And the other thing that comes up in those texts, which I think is fascinating, is that God said that Moses wouldn't get to go into the land. And Satan is there saying, well, hold on a second. If If his body is buried there, then he has gone into the land. And that makes God a liar. 
One of Satan's favourite things is to use the Bible to spread falsehood. To twist God's words. We spoke about that last time. I don't need to repeat it again now. But suffice to say, there is a dispute that seems strange to us, but it ultimately revolves around the authority of Satan and the authority of God and whether God can be trusted on what he said. And so when when, uh, Satan says essentially that God is a liar... The response of Michael is exactly what we see here in the text in Jude. That he said, body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. The blasphemous judgment is the God was lying if the body goes into the land. But rather said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I've thought about this and we're going to have to got a lot to cover this morning. I need to get through to verse, 13, uh, um, verse 11, rather. No, verse 13. Um, and we have got a communion Sunday, so I want to be careful. But I decided not to go on a rabbit trail here. Normally I would turn to the Old Testament. And I figured today, if I turn to the Old Testament, I'm going to go to Ezekiel now. I'm going to go to Genesis with Cain. I'm going to go to Numbers with, uh, with um, Balaam and uh, with, with uh, uh, Korah. Um, and I just, we would be in this text for another three weeks. So you just have to excuse me that I'm not turning to those passages. But in Ezekiel 28, uh, verses 11 to 19, we have the reference to the uh, pre-fall Satan. The pre-fall Satan. And Satan was an angelic being. He is in the realm of the cherubim and seraphim. And... We know that those angelic beings, though we call them angelic, they're not angels per se. There are cherubim, seraphim. Some would say that they're two different types of being. Some would say that they're the same being with different purposes or or what have you. Um, But the issue here is simply that Satan is a being that that is in the angelic realm that is more highly ranked than a mere angel, even an archangel who oversees the other angels. So there are angels, there is an archangel who oversees the angels, and then there's cherubim and seraphim that are higher above still. So Satan, prior to his fall, I guess even after his fall, is of the higher ranking angelic beings. So Michael is a lower rank, is a lower level being. And... So when Satan goes above his rank and says, oh God, this, then Michael doesn't follow suit. Michael doesn't say, well, you, that. He says, I'll let God deal with you. We'll let God rebuke you. And there is here a, a, a principle of proper authority. A principle of proper authority. We see it in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is ordered to do something that is sinful for him to do, and he can't do it. He has to bow down before the statue. And, and when Daniel rebels, resists those commands that he is not obliged to keep, and that would be wrong for him to keep, he is nonetheless highly respectful of the king. Oh, great and glorious king, he says. You need to understand the God who I worship, who is more glorious still. But there is respect for the king. It's something that many of us would do well to remember. There are those in places of authority who aren't doing a very good job. And we may need to resist their commands, though they are in a higher authority. That doesn't mean that there should not be respect. There must be a degree of, well, of course... We must do what you say in your realm. But God has all authority and he has not given you authority here. Or you're telling me to do something that God tells me not to do or whatever it is. But there is still nonetheless respect. You know, we're here in a church setting. And as pastor, you know, I, I am, have authority. Biblically speaking, over spiritual matters. 
Does that mean that I can't be questioned? Absolutely not. If I say something wrong, come and have a chat. Tell me I'm wrong. Show me from the scriptures. There can't be a situation where people who, we, just, we don't just ever challenge or question people in authority. But there has to be a good degree of respect. And there needs to be respect in society, in the home, in, in church. There has to be respect for authority. Why? Well, we're going to deal with this in our series um, coming up on uh, Caesar and church and these kinds of matters. Just be a very brief series, just two or three weeks. But, but we'll deal with some of these matters. But the most important thing for us to, to note is this. That all authority belongs to God. Whoever else has authority in the home, in the church, in government, what have you, they only have authority because God has given it to them. They don't get to choose the authority they have. They don't get to decide to what extent they have authority. God gives it. That's it. Simple as that. God gives it because all authority belongs to him. It would be like if you rent a house and you pay your rent each month and you have certain rights and what have you. And if you fill out a form and they say, what is your address? Then that is your address. That's your home. But you don't own it. It doesn't belong to you. All authority that God gives out is essentially like a rented property. You may have that authority for now, but I might evict you later. But you need to always remember that that home is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. You are simply a tenant. And so all authority is God and he distributes it and therefore various authorities have to be respected. And what we see when we look at the Bible again and again is that God has appointed angelic beings certain roles, privileges, authorities. When, when the disciples came and they, they went out in pairs and Jesus said, go and I give you authority to cast out demons, the implication in the text is that if he had not have given them that authority, they couldn't have done that. They were only able to do it because he gave them authority to do so. That also then implies that those demonic entities had authority prior to somebody being given a higher authority. And again, I come back to that astonishing passage in the temptation of Jesus, where Satan says, here, have all the kingdoms of the earth. Perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, they're not yours to give out, pal. But he didn't. And so there are authorities that God has given, even to the ungodly. That shouldn't surprise us. Because we see it in the human realm. I'm willing to bet that most of you see people in government who are ungodly. Just, just a wild guess. So God allows the ungodly to have authority. Why should it surprise us that that is also true in the spiritual realm? So the lesson here in the whole issue of Moses' body is the place for respect for authority even when that authority is in error. Satan was in error And he disrespected the authority of God. But Michael, though he was obeying God, and though he was not in error, he nonetheless was careful not to go above his own rank and not to blaspheme Satan. And rather leave it to God. If we truly believe that all authority is God's and that he has handed it out, then we should be going to him far more often and saying, Lord, you deal with that. Lord, you deal with that. I think far too many of us get whipped up in the I'm going to change the world kind of stuff. And there's a place for that. I'm not saying Christians don't have a place in politics. I'm not saying Christians might not be called to go and do many of these things. But at the end of the day, we need to respect authorities, even when they're wrong, and we need to give everything over to God. Now... When we come to the text here, when we come to verse 10, the connection of this story in verse 9 with the leaders here in this passage becomes clear. But these people, that's the false teachers, that's the ungodly people who've crept in unnoticed. But these people blaspheme 
all that they do not understand. In, in other words, the teachers have come in and they are ones who don't respect authority. Now this is, this is really important because we can now start to put some of these pieces together. We noticed and we saw that the warning from Peter in the passage of Second Peter that Jen read for us this morning, uh, that they, they were warned that these guys are going to come in. Now, here in Jew, we're told they have come in. But he has to tell them that they've come in because they might not know that they've come in because they have crept in unnoticed. It's kind of like one of those, you know, kind of sci-fi slash horror movies. One of you, one of you is really an alien, but we don't know which one. And we're going to find the whole, we'll spend the whole movie finding out which one of you it is, sort of thing, you know? It's like, there may well be false teachers in our midst. Possible. And certainly if we're here long enough as a church, there certainly will be those who would come in, who would want to usurp authority. And, and so we see that in a couple of ways. I think firstly, those who have false doctrine very rarely come and say, hey pastor, you were teaching on Sunday and you know you said something about scripture and you argue from this passage and I'm not sure I quite really agree with you. When someone has a different view, what is far more common is they'll come and they'll say, hey, did you hear what the pastor said on Sunday? I'm not sure that's right. You know, let me tell you what I think the Bible said. And they do it and bypass authority. That's far more typical, far more common. I've seen it countless times in my years of ministry. And, and for, for me to have a problem with that as pastor of the church is not to say that we don't encourage debate and disagreement and, and criticism where valid. It's not to say that at all. It's simply to say that there is a way of doing it. And, and sleep it, uh, slipping in secretly and kind of nudge, 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 and usurping the authority, that's not how you do it. If you think there's something in the church that's being taught wrongly, then you go to the person who ultimately is able to set what is and what isn't taught, and what we do and what we don't believe, rather than going and creating grumbling and mutterings and murmurings elsewhere. And I think also we see this when decisions are made even outside the Bible when, when the pastor says well we're going to do church this way you know you'll notice this morning we made the radical decision to switch the order of the Bible reading and the prayer oh shocking some people get upset about things like that in some churches I know you guys don't but some people do you, you, you play a, you, you, we're not doing a song then we're doing a song then instead we, we switch the Bible st- some people get really upset about stuff like that. I've seen entire churches split over things like that. It's bizarre. But if you don't like it, well, you're welcome to come and talk about it. And you can present evidence to suggest that the decision is, is an awful one. Oh, I desperately think that we should actually have the prayer second and the, and the Bible reading first. And here's why from scripture, or here's why from logging. Oh, that's fine, you're welcome to do that. But when we say, no, we're going to do it this way, thanks. That's when we get to see how humble a spirit you are. And that's when we get to see whether you are somebody who respects authority. It's really that simple. And what happens is that these false teachers come in and they blaspheme so they go above authority. That's the context of the passage. And they don't understand it. Of course they don't. They're the false teachers. They don't understand it. So this, this, this blaspheming of authority, this, this, this going above their pay grade, as it were, is seen in two ways. Firstly, as we've been dealing in the practical sense, I think in a church, there needs to be respect for elders even when uh, you don't agree. There, there has to be. There just has to be. It's how it, the church functions. There are right now in many churches around this country, in, in several well-known ones as well, and I won't name them, but there are many well-known churches that right now are being shattered because their pastors have taken some sort of more kind of woke view on various issues, and the church is just going, as a result. 
And there are, I'm watching a few little videos of, of clips from these churches online and seeing what's happening. It's, it's heartbreaking because I've been through, you know, church splits in the past. It's a horrible thing. But I'm seeing people who are kind of standing up and saying, well, we're going to do this and this is, the, this is the constitution of the church and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I get it and I understand it. And I agree with them in those cases that the pastor is in error. But I just don't agree with that way of dealing with it. I think if, if you're at a church and the pastor's in error, leave the church. You don't have to be a warrior for the church. God's big enough to deal with that. Just, just go. Just go. Leave. Don't, don't sit under someone with false teaching. And don't sit under someone with false teaching for months and years and then expect to turn the church around because you're, you've got this savior complex or something. Just get out. Go. Leave it. And go and find somewhere where the word is faithfully taught and sit under that teaching. And of course, in everything, you know, there is ultimately an issue here where the authority that is ultimately being rejected is God. Not just in that when you reject the pastoral authority, you're rejecting God who gave that authority, but but also in the sense of these false teachers, they don't understand the word of God, and yet they're placing their teaching above the word of God. And, and that's why, and I, and I see this constantly in, in various areas of life, that if someone disagrees on scripture, you, you, can, you can see their heart in about 10 seconds of discussion sometimes. Without, it doesn't even matter what the issue is, just in how they respond to scripture. James told us so clearly, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's how we approach the Bible. That's how we deal with it. And when, when we're not quick to listen, when we're actually quick to speak rather than slow to speak, when the Bible says something, you say, yeah, 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 but, 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 but I'm not sure about that because of this and this and this, then, and even more so when we're quick to anger, it shows a heart that is resisting the authority of the word. I've said this so many times, and I'll probably say it many more, but if there's nothing in the Bible that offends you, you just haven't read it enough. You, you just just dig a bit deeper. There's plenty, plenty of passages in the Bible that we read. You know, Jan and I are together reading the Bible reading plan this year. And there's a few times that we just stop and go, hmm, you know, <laughs> that's tricky right there. And, I, you know, it, and there are things that are hard and they're difficult. There are things for us to wrestle with. There are things where that God makes decisions and we're like, well, I wouldn't make those decisions. Which is probably for the best. But nonetheless, we have to come to the Bible every time. When you read it daily, which you must. Bible reading plans on the back table if you haven't got one. When you come and you study the Bible at church, you need to come with a humble, prayerful heart. God, I come before your word for it to change me. May I humbly receive correction from it. You've got to come to the Bible that way. You have to. Otherwise, you just end up saying, well, I'm going to tell the Bible what, it's, what it means. It might seem to say this, but this is actually what it should say. This is what it means. And then you've started on a path that has no end. Because there's no limit. And this is... Something that we're seeing more and more. Kind of cautious about saying this, but you know, in evangelical churches over the years, one of the issues that, that I, I think is significant is the issue of female pastors and females teaching the church. And it's not that it's this huge, huge, you know, like the Trinity or salvation by faith alone, like this huge, huge issue in that regard, but I think for churches over the last few decades at least, it's acted as a canary in the mine. It's acted as a canary in the mine because it's an issue that the world just cannot fathom or understand. You know, like, well, you know, anything a man can do, a woman can do, this is, this is sexist, this is you know, patriarchal, this is misogynist, it shouldn't happen and what have you. And so the world is screaming at us that when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to take authority over a man, or to teach and take authority over a man in 1 Peter 2, then, uh, 1 Timothy 2, rather, then 
then that just, that's something that offends the world so greatly. And if there's any part of us that is fearful of being rejected by the world, that's the area that we're going we're gonna to fall on. And, and the problem is, is that once you do, what's next? And what we've seen historically is that churches that, that compromised on that issue some time ago are now starting to feel the pressure on other issues and are compromising on those issues. And thus, the slippery slope, which I know we don't want to read into that too much because not all slopes are slippery, but this one certainly is. Once you've decided that the Bible's authority can be, can be cast aside because it offends you or it offends the world around you, you've, just, you've got a free-for-all. You can do whatever you like. Anything. Ah, I don't like that passage. We'll just we'll come up with a reason for that. It's dangerous. So be be clear on this in your hearts and minds. Number one, that you are going to submit and bow to the word of God, whatever else happens. Be absolutely convinced of that in your hearts and minds. Make that decision now. Make it for yourself and your families. And do not ever budge on that. It doesn't matter how much it offends me. I am going to submit to the word of God. Secondly, the world is going to hate you. Just accept it. Get your heads around it. Just deal with it. They hated Jesus They're going to hate you. It's just, it's a done deal. If you seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul tells Timothy, you will be persecuted. You will be. It's not a question. It's not you might be. You will be. And some of you don't know what persecution is because you don't know what it is to live for Christ. That's harsh, but it's true. Because if you do seek to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. And there are far too many Christians who, who are on the one hand, are like, I, I believe in the Bible, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, I'm going to bow before the Word of God. But then on the other hand, they're still, man, I don't want my co-workers to hate me. They're going to think I'm such a bigot, such an idiot, such a whatever, you know. I, I, you know. You know, my, 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 my family aren't going to like me. My people of this grouping or this tribe aren't going to like me. They're going to feel like I've betrayed them or something. And, and I, how, how do I word it so that I can hang on to the Bible and, and they, they also will think I may be a little bit more nuanced, you know? Like, like yeah, I'm opposed to that, but not in the way that those guys are, you know? Let me just say this clearly. Nuance is the key to denial. There are times where we have to be nuanced. We have to say, well, this is a complicated issue. Let me explain it very carefully to you. There's times where we have to do that. But so often in our circles, nuance is just somebody who wants to deny Scripture but knows that they can't and they're stuck sitting on the fence. Be really careful. The Bible says that's a sin. It's a sin. You can dress it up how you like, but it's still a sin. Don't avoid the issue. Don't run away from it. But if I just say it like that, they're going to hate me. Yes, they will. Fantastic. We agree on something. Well done. Brilliant. Just accept it, friends. Do you really care more about the world denying you? than you do of the possibility of you denying Christ. Let's take these things seriously. So the false teachers are ones who do not respect authority, neither of man, neither of creation, nor of God himself. They do not understand because their teaching is false. And this is absolutely crucial. Okay? And I love this a little bit. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And this is, this is magnificent in how it's structured. Its theology is rich, and it's just a wonderful reminder. Okay? There's something they don't understand. What's that? That's the things of God. The truth. The Bible. They don't understand that. Authority. They don't understand it. But they do understand this. They do understand this. 
They understand their flesh. They understand their flesh. And there are things that they, like animals, understand instinctively. That's the link with animals. Animals do things instinctively. They do things through the flesh, through just their their, their biological impulses, right? It's like if you've got a male dog that's not neutered, and there's a female dog that's walking by, and she's on heat, right? You, you can't sit down with your dog and have a discussion about what is appropriate in front of small children. You, it doesn't make any difference. There is a biological impulse, and boom, there it is, right? It's like, you know, I love my dog. I mean, my wife will tell you probably far, far too much. I'm one of those people, right? And, I, and, and I'm not ashamed at all. Yeah, I'm a dog daddy, sue me, whatever. I love him dearly, right? If you come to our house and knock on the door, boom! It's just like an explosion. There's someone at the door. There's someone at the door. It's just so exciting. There's someone at the door. And he's just like, oh! And it's like, no, no, that's somebody you know and it's not somebody brand new. You can't have a rational discussion. You can't, no, no, it's just so-and-so. You know who they, you know them, don't have to get excited. It's fine. It's no one coming to kill us. It's not the mailman. It's not someone that you haven't met before that you can sniff for the first. Just, just can't. These words mean nothing because the response is instinctive. So, and this is the analogy, animals, that he's making here. There are things that they don't understand. Well, I need to explain this to your buddy. This, you don't have to get excited about the door, right? You heard that noise. It's just the mailman's put something in the box. He's gone away. It's over. Done. He doesn't understand. But the things he do, he does understand. There's a knock, there's a sound, there's a smell, there's a scent, there's something. He understands something. And he does it instinctively. False teachers, in their most extreme form, are unbelievers. And as such, they don't have a choice of whether they sin or not. They're just going to sin. Everything they do is tainted by sin. Because sin is in their flesh. And they do what they desire. And it is instinctive. The thing that distinguishes us as Christians is that we have two natures. We have our old sinful nature in our flesh, but we have a new nature, the Holy Spirit within us, who enables us, through the working of our minds, to see God's word, to understand it is true, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, to do what is right, regardless of what our instinctive passions desire. We saw that throughout the book of James. You've got these desires, and you've got these passions. Tough. Doesn't matter. Accept God, accept his sovereignty, accept his way, seek his way, put these things aside. And that's what these guys don't do. They don't understand how things should be. They don't understand right and wrong in the Bible. They don't know how to take correction. They don't know authority structures. But you know what they do know? They know lots of things very, very well. Some false teachers are some of the cleverest people you will come across. Slimy. Nasty, manipulative, but very clever. And they know that they can't just come in and declare their false doctrine or they'll be chased out the door. So they sneak in, they slip in, and they come and have their conversations and they create their dissent and their division and they do their work and what have you because they're not stupid. There's things they understand very, very, very well. But there's other things that they don't understand. And the key thing in this text is that the very thing that they do, the very way that they're operating in the church, because their desire to be recognized, their desire to be understood, their desire to teach others, their desire to make disciples, their desire to spread their their understanding, because all of these things come from a heart of sin, because they come from their own flesh, because it comes in that realm then the very thing that they're doing is ultimately going to destroy them because they're going to do things according to their sinful desires and the wages of sin is death. So they're going to be destroyed by their own actions. 
Oh, how I wish that we could say, oh, there's a false teacher. Let's just let them get on with it and they'll destroy themselves. That's just fantastic. That's wonderful. Let them get on with it. The problem is, and the whole reason for the book of Jude, is they end up destroying lots of other people with them. And that's why we need to take care. But have no doubt that their behavior is sinful, fleshly, and animal-like. And that's why we have the woes. Woe to them. This is something you don't see too much in the New Testament. Jesus, Matthew 23, has the the famous woes to the Pharisees. Far more common in the Old Testament prophets. We saw it in Isaiah a lot. But they are in trouble. Judgment is upon them. For, and this is why. Now notice here we have uh, Jude's triplets gone crazy at this point. Okay? There is three things that they do, or they've done. They've walked, they've abandoned, and they've perished. They've walked in the way of Cain, they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they've perished uh, in Korah's rebellion. So we have three things that they've done linked to three Old Testament characters. Now this is where I would love to take the time, turn to each of those passages, spend a lot, a lot of time, but... I've got to keep moving through Jude. So let me just do this briefly. Firstly, they have walked in the way of Cain. So the walking in the New Testament is consistently used as a parallel to just how they live their life. They've lived their life like Cain lived his life. Okay? Now, with the story of Cain, we understand that Cain's offering was rejected. Cain's offering was rejected. And Cain was offended... And Cain reacted in a sinful and fleshly way. What he instinctively desired to do was something that was sinful. I have a problem here. It's my brother. I don't like him. He's been accepted. I've been rejected. I've got a problem with my brother. I hate my brother. What do I do with someone I hate? I don't want them around. I know I'll kill him. It sounds to us like this terrible thing. There's no legal system. There's no Ten Commandments. There's just one guy with another guy who's his brother, who he's finally had enough of, and I just don't want him to be around, so I'll get rid of him. And it makes perfect sense. And it's instinctive and it's natural. And you and I have those same instincts. If we're believers, then we have the Holy Spirit. But even for the unbelieving world who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, they are restrained by consequence, by society and by a Judeo-Christian morality that they've grown up with without even being aware of it. Which, by the way, is why it's super scary where society's going, because they're putting aside that ethic, and there's so many things attached to it that are going to go with it, and they're not even aware of that right now. But we'll save that for another day. Um, But suffice to say that Cain's actions were actions that were instinctive, doing what suited him, and were things that were just, just... ridiculously sinful. And so you can see how that reference there to how they've lived their lives points back to what we've been dealing with in verse 10. They simply live the way that suits them regardless of the consequence. And, of course, who's the other key character in the story of Cain? It's Abel. There are consequences for others when it comes to false teachers. That's why we don't tolerate them. And that's why we don't show mercy to them. Because there are victims. And there are people who suffer at their hands. And there are consequences. Can I give you just one example of this? I'm going to drag on a bit here. But just in passing. there You, you, you probably know the names of many of these false health, wealth and prosperity gospel nonsense people. If you've ever watched TBN, you can pretty much make a list of everybody who's on that channel and they're, they're, they're all in the ranks of false teachers. There may be a few who aren't, but they shouldn't be on there, so you can just associate with them. It serves them right for being on there. But back in the day, there was one health, wealth and prosperity guy who um, was particularly well-known in England called Morris Cerullo. And he was well known in England because what he did is he saw, well, the, the British really, in particular, loved Billy Graham. And we did. We loved Billy Graham. We love anything 
ecumenical in Britain. You know, all the churches coming together. Let's put aside our differences. Oh, we love that stuff in England. It's destroyed the church. But that's, again, another story. But they love Billy Graham in England. He had a huge impact on, on British churches. So, so Maurice Cerullo kind of jumped on that and said, well, here I am, this wacky health, wealth, and prosperity, give me all your money guy. But they love Billy Graham. So why don't I just come and do rallies like Billy Graham Get all the churches involved. Say, here we are. We're going to tell people about Jesus. Get on board, everybody. And we'll make it like a Billy Graham-type crusade thing. And that's what happened. And I, at that day, the time that he was doing that a few times, I was a Christian. And I wasn't aware of any of the controversy. To me, I mean, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. I I was just a complete victim to him. Because it was just, I had no idea. Here's a guy doing doing a rally. He's saying, bring your unbelieving friends. Come, come. This sounds great. Why would I not like that? I had no discernment. I was young in my faith. And so Morris Sorrow did these huge campaigns in England and people came along. Morris Cerullo was praying for healing for various people. And we have friends that we went to church with in London and their mother went to the Morris Cerullo rally. And he laid his hands on her and prayed for her to be healed. And he declared to her that she was healed and said she just had to believe it by faith. And he, he, didn't, he didn't just tell her she might be healed. He didn't say, go and see how you feel. He didn't say, refer to your doctor and double check. He just declared her healed. She stopped taking her medication and she died. This stuff happens. There are victims. It is the way of Cain. Just do whatever you do and who cares about anybody else? Second example given is they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam was this guy in the book of Numbers. You know him because of his donkey. His donkey's more famous than he is. But Balaam's this guy who basically, if he wanted someone blessed, then, then he blessed them. If he wanted them cursed, he cursed them. He seemed to have this bizarre thing where he, he proclaimed these things and they happened. Um, like a sage of old. And so he was hired um, to, to put a curse upon Israel and... Uh, God intervened and he ended up blessing Israel and and so on and so forth. But why did he do this? He was a mercenary. He did it for money. There are soldiers who fight for their country. And then there are mercenaries. And you say, who do you fight for? And they say, whoever pays me. Balaam was a mercenary. False teachers will typically do whatever they need to do to get paid. The payment may be very simple. It might just be financial. But it may be glory. It may be prestige, recognition, power, control. All of these things. These are other forms of payment. But they want to get paid. And like Balaam, they don't really care whether what they do is right or wrong as long as they are the winners. The only measure of a ministry is its faithfulness to God and to his word. It's the only measure of any ministry. And yet there are these guys out there kind of like, you know, well, I've, got, I've got a private jet, but he's got two. And my church has this many and his church has got that many. They're in it for themselves. And finally, they perished in Korah's rebellion. You see there's a theme developing here. He talked in verse 4 about how they were designated for condemnation. He's mentioned that they are um, destroyed. They are destroyed, verse 10, by all that they unreason- like unreasoning animals they understand instinctively. And here again, they perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was the one who said, we don't like you being in charge, Moses. It's authority issue again. We don't like you being in charge. We're going to stage a coup. And Moses said, oh, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Why? Because Moses was worried about his position? No, because Moses knew what was going to happen. Because Moses understood it wasn't about him. It was about God who appointed him. And the ground opened up and fire came down from heaven. And there was a great judgment. Korah's rebellion is renowned for that. And Korah was one who the text kind of implies that he was in it for power and wealth as well. He was a very wealthy man. And 
Everything that he owned went down into Sheol with him when the ground opened up. He gathered all his belongings. He got himself in a position of power. And God just went, boom, over, gone. And the only thing that remained were his descendants. All the other rebels, by the way, their descendants, all their, their families all went into the, into the earth with them. Or got burnt up with them. But Korah's didn't. They were redeemed from Sheol. And they hung around his descendants and wrote lots of psalms. You'll see them in the book of Psalms under the sons of Korah. They were always grateful for their redemption as we also should be. So there we have the three examples, Cain and Balaam and Korah. And we have issues of selfishness and and um, you know, doing whatever is instinctive to us. We have issues of greed and, and gaining for ourselves. And then we have again the issue of authority. It's kind of almost parallels the defiling the flesh, rejecting authority and blaspheming the glorious ones that we saw previously. And so these are what these people are. Now we'll have to do these last couple of verses quite quickly. Um, I don't want to spend forever on them, so I'll have to skim a few things I was going to say. But they have been given descriptions, and you can tell that Jude is in full flow now, because he's going to do two triplets combined into one. There's six descriptions here that are given. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness have been reserved forever. This is what they're like. Okay, false teachers. As we go into these six quickly, let's just remember this as we go in. That this is the outworking of these very specific, very bad false teachers who aren't even saved. There's going to be elements of this that are true of false teachers um, today who are saved. And there's going to be other elements that may not be true. But these are characteristics that we might typically see in false teachers. So let's just have a look um, at them. Firstly, they're hidden reefs in your love feast. You're sailing a ship, you're going around, it's thousands of years ago, your ship's made of wood, it's not made of steel, there's no radar, there's no way of knowing what's underneath, and if you go into reefs, the reefs are going to rip your boat up and you're going to be shipwrecked, like what happened to Paul in the book of Acts. Hidden reefs. The love feast being referred to here is referring to the thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the communion we are doing today, we do as an isolated thing, the bread and the cup. But communion was originally part of a whole meal, Passover meal. And so what Christians in the early church would often do is replicate the Passover meal in its entirety, not once a year, but more often to take the bread and cup together as part of that context. And as time went by, then it just became part of just a big meal generally. It would be, let's have a big meal and celebrate, and we'll make communion part of that. And in the church at Corinth, it became this occasion, which was an excuse for gluttony and even um, drunkenness. Oh, and let's just throw in a little bit of communion at the end of it. And so there were these things referred to as love feasts. And I think the idea is, is that the, the, the even in a, in, a, in a good church where the, the the system is not being misused, that these people would come in and they'd fellowship with you. I, you know, I've seen this in church so many times. I know people who come into church and their intention is to cause harm, their intention is to spread division, their intention is to, to cause damage, and they'll be, oh, hi, we love you, we're so friendly, we're so nice. In fact... The people who are false teachers are almost always nice. Almost always. Because if they're not nice, no one's interested in what they've got to say. It doesn't work. It would be like being a salesman and saying, here, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to sell you my product. Is it any good? No. Good value for money? No. Do you think I should get it? Probably not. You're not going to make a good living as a salesman, are you? So, so they've got to be very nice people. And so they come in and they come and have these feasts and this time of fellowship with the, with the saints. 
and, and they hang out and there's no fear. They've got no concern. They're not bothered. They're like, oh, we're friends, we're nice, we're all buddies, and all of this. But they're hidden reefs. You've got to watch out for them because you're going to be there fellowshipping, being friends with them, and ksh, there they are, shipwrecking you. And they have no fear in doing that, no fear of being caught. Secondly, they're shepherds feeding themselves. This is a repetition of the issue of Cain, um, the selfishness, following their own instinctive desires. They're shepherds feeding themselves. We could do a whole sermon on these three words. Shepherds feeding themselves. On those three words, we could do an entire sermon. We would go to the book of Ezekiel, and we would see how Ezekiel speaks at huge length about how false teachers have come in and they're bad shepherds. What is the role of a shepherd? The role of a shepherd is to look after the sheep and feed them. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, You shepherds have become shepherds so that you can get your wool, that you can kill the sheep, and you can feast on them. The sheep are there for you rather than you being there for the sheep. And that is the whole basis of what Jesus then... Jesus is standing on that foundation of Ezekiel when he comes and says in John chapter 10 verse 1, I am the good shepherd. And so this model of bad teachers being shepherds who rather than looking after the sheep are using the sheep to feed themselves is a model of, of, of uh, an, an analogy of a false teacher that has existed for thousands of years. And that is why we don't pass an offering box or plate around the church anymore and we just stick it in the back and hope you know it's there. That's why we try and do things differently because there are so many people out there who are using churches in so-called ministry and their only objective is to get from the people who come. And we cannot be like that. We have got to be people who pour our lives out for one another. And it seems so often in the uh, false gospel that we see so often today that everybody that follows them has to pour their lives out for them but they get to live in luxury. It's not how it should be. And so that is an analogy that fits so well. We see it today. They're waterless clouds swept along by winds. This is really important. We live in a very dry climate here, okay? So if you're farming in California, irrigation is essential. And you need your rain. And, you know, if you know anything about the way it works over here, when we get heavy snowfall, that's much better than heavy rain. Because the snow sits up in the mountains, gradually melts over the months. You get heavy snowfall in winter, then we're going to have, we're going to have water flowing down the LA River all the way through the summer. And it's important in dry climates to get water. So when you're living in Israel and you're farming in a heavy farming community, it's prone to drought. So when you see clouds coming and you desperately need rain, you go, oh, hallelujah, there's rain coming. Look at the clouds, dark clouds. When those clouds then don't produce any water, they've just misled you by their appearance. There was a guy many years ago who I came across and I was working kind of on the side I was pastoring and on the side working in a Christian bookstore. And he went to one of these health, wealth and prosperity gospel churches. And he came in a couple of times and I kind of, that's not what you should be doing, pal. You should maybe think about this and we try to engage with him a little bit. And he came along and it was a book he really wanted. And he said, I'd love to get this book, but I haven't got any money right now. Can I, can I take it and pay you later? And... I let him do that, and he didn't pay later. But as he left the door, I think the last thing I ever said to him was, that whole prosperity thing, how's it working out for you? And he, he, uh, it, it impacted him, I could see. Because here's a guy who's been arguing for, no, no, you're wrong. The Bible says we should be prosperous if we have faith and all of this. And here he is, then coming back and saying, I'd like to get that book for for 10 bucks, but I haven't got any money, I haven't got enough money right now. And this is the problem with false doctrine. It promises something and it doesn't deliver. 
It's, it's like the lights of Vegas. Now, I don't understand why people go to Vegas and try and make money on the machines. Do you, what do you think pays for all those lights? I mean, for crying out loud, people, you know, they're, they're setting up casinos because they're philanthropists and they want to help make people rich. Are you crazy? No, they, they, they are saying, come, 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 million dollar, you know, million dollar, um, <coughs> you know, jackpot, come and put your money in, waterless clouds. I remember in, in England for years and years we didn't have any lotteries and finally they succumbed and the government said we'll do a lottery but we'll make a lot of money out there'll be this amount of money going to charity and that's how we'll justify it. And, and so there was these headlines because for the first time in my lifetime there was going to be a lottery and somebody worked out that the odds of you winning the jackpot was pretty much the same as an aeroplane falling on your head. That's why lotteries, just as an aside, are taxes for poor people. You got no money, no chance of changing your life, buy a ticket, it could change everything. It's just a tax on poor people, poor and stupid people. Waterless clouds. Here's this thing. Yeah, everything's going to be great. Come to Jesus and blah, blah, blah. I've heard people who were told, come to Jesus because you've got a bad marriage. Come to Jesus and, and Jesus will restore your marriage. Well, then what happens when you come to Jesus and your marriage isn't restored? Jesus has let you down. Come to Jesus and you'll be healed. And you're not healed. Jesus has let you down. Whatever happened to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? Whatever happened in, in, you know, give up your life that you, that you may gain it? Whatever happened to a gospel of sacrifice? A gospel of humility? Whatever happened to a gospel of repentance? Waterless clouds. They promise and they can't deliver. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. That kind of follows on from the waterless clouds in this way. Okay? You have a tree. Um, we, we live in the midst of lots of citrus trees. You may not see them because we live in a city-ish area. But you go a little bit further out and there's orange trees everywhere. And oranges have two seasons. You get a crop twice a year on your orange trees. If you've got one in your garden, you'll get an orange crop twice a year. So you're waiting around for the crop to come and there's no oranges. Well, you know, maybe it was a weird thing. Maybe I'll get, an, I'll get, a, I'll get something in the next crop. Next crop comes along, no oranges. What are you going to do? You're going you're to leave it there for the next year and the next year and the next year? You're going to keep on going and hope that eventually it will come good? No, you say, there was no crop for the first crop, there was no crop for the second crop. This is useless, cut it down, put something else in. What he's saying is, these guys don't produce, they're as good as dead already. See, when you haven't had the first season yet, for your orange tree, you don't know there's going to be no crop. But the tree's already dead. We're just waiting for you to find out. And then you're going to uproot it, burn it, and get rid of it. These guys are judged already. We're just waiting to find out. We're just waiting to see it. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They're here in this context. There are boats on the sea, big waves, bad things. These aren't, you know, nice waves crashing on the beach down by Santa Monica or something, you know. This is, this is, you're out fishing and there's big waves and they could kill you. And what he's saying here is that these teachers are the things that will harm you. And the foam that is cast up by the sea, by these waves, is their own shame. When they destroy you, that's their shame. That is the shamefulness that comes from their false teaching brings destruction into your life. And they are shamed through that destruction that comes. And finally, they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Stars wandering stars there's, there's much dispute in the commentaries here but if you think of everything that's the Greek for stars is just shining brightness and you go out in the night sky and the same stars are in the same places right they're, they're just there but there are some stars that you only see at certain times of year years and there are some stars that are actually comets and you only see once in a lifetime right so that would perhaps be the wandering star that they're there, there they are, and boom, now they're gone, darkness. That's there. 
They're there, and oh, look, and then boom, there's only going to be darkness that will ultimately come. The interesting thing about the use of stars is that when stars are occasionally used symbolically in Scripture, they tend to refer to angelic beings, which is what's been referenced multiple times already in Jude, that they are like the fallen angels, stars of God who are now in darkness that have been reserved for them forever. So as we come to the end of that passage, sorry I had to try and get all, squeeze all that in today, but as we come to the end of the passage, just, this is our big takeaway. False doctrine is incredibly destructive. I know you want to be nice. I'm sure you are. I know you want to be liked. I know you don't want to be the bad guy. But false doctrine kills. We have no mercy. I'll end with this little story. Every now and again a Mormon will pop their head up. I feel obliged to say something. It's my own personal whack-a-mole. They'll come up on social media and say, hey, hey, uh, local Christian, we're here to serve you. You might see it on social media locally. We're here to serve you. We're just, we're just friendly Christians. You, you got something that needs fixing. We'll come and fix it for you. We're just nice people. Did we mention how nice we are? We're incredibly nice. Look at us smiling. We're nice. Did I tell you we were nice? We're really nice. And we're kind of Christians, you know, nice. That's what they do. They pop up and they say this. And I feel it's my obligation to let everybody know whom they've, you know, they've messaged on whatever forum and told everyone how nice they are and it's my duty to say that in, you know, not, not quite so specifically but that they are purveyors of false doctrine that come from the bowels of hell. That's really what they are. That they're not Christians at all but they're a cult. And when you try and communicate that you know, not, not being unduly unpleasant, but, you know, just so you know, guys, these aren't actually Christians. This is, this is, these are Mormons, they're a cult, and we Christians don't recognize them as Christians. They believe a different gospel, a different Jesus, and what have you. Man, does all, does all craziness ensue. You know, the, oh no, we are Christians, and we believe in Jesus too, and all the unbelievers come along, oh, you're very mean and nasty, and we don't want to go to your church. You're not nice like they're nice. They, I, I know that they're nice, they told me they're nice, they said they're nice, they're nice. And I'm the bad guy. Why would I do that to myself? Because if they go to somebody's house and they're nice to those people and the people listen to them and they take them to their church and they become a Mormon, then they are going to be condemned for their rejection of the true Jesus Christ because they've embraced the false Jesus who isn't God and doesn't save. This is serious stuff. This is life and death. This is eternal destiny. This is important. So be prepared to be unliked. And be prepared to take a stand. Because false doctrine kills. And false teachers are killers. We need to know the truth so that we can resist these false doctrines. We need to know the true gospel. We need to be people who are of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for leading us into the truth and protect us from false doctrine, protect us from false teachers. And Lord, may we be those who bow before your word. Amen.